Well, this uh, series is all about Jesus' family tree and his genealogy, and brings up a question, have any of you ever done a little digging into your family tree or genealogy? Um, I know some of you here at North Cross have done a lot of work in that area, and with websites like Ancestry.com, it has become easier than ever to kind of find where you've come from and who you might be related to. And it, it's kind of fun to see, okay, maybe I might be related to some famous inventor like Thomas Edison or some famous American hero like Abraham Lincoln. But when you start to dig in your genealogy, you need to be very careful because you also might be related to some evil dictator from the past or some famous mass murderer. You just don't know, but I do know that probably wouldn't show up on your Facebook page if you found that out. What's true about every family is that there are some interesting or surprising characters that you'll, you'll find and that you're related to. Maybe some of them are sitting next to you. It, it's Christmas time, and uh, people tend to gather with their families during Christmas, and it makes me think of that uh, family in Christmas vacation movie that gathered together, and their interesting relative, his name was, um, you know it, Cousin Eddie, right? Some of you have a cousin, Eddie, in your family. And the embarrassing things that they say and the obnoxious things that they do uh, make you, you know, wonder, okay, well, I know the genealogy says we're related, but I kind of wish, <laughs> I kind of wish we weren't, right? In this series, we're digging into the family tree of Jesus, into Jesus' family tree. And, and you see, when Matthew decided to write his Christmas account or the coming of Jesus, he didn't start with Caesar Augustus and Bethlehem and a manger. As you've heard us say, his first audience were Jewish people. And in order for Matthew to be convincing when it comes to Jesus being the Messiah, he had to show them that Jesus was of the family tree of both Abraham and of King David. And so that's the purpose. That's the, the why behind why Matthew began with Jesus' family tree. But as he goes through the family tree, the interesting thing is that there's some interesting characters that are found in Jesus' family tree. None of them are named Eddie, but you know they're in some ways even worse. And what's also interesting is that Matthew doesn't quickly just sort of go over and pretend you didn't, you know, hear about the cousin Eddie's of Jesus' family tree, but instead he actually stops and he highlights them and he wants the reader to remember that Judah and Tamar had an incestuous relationship that led to a son who would be a part of Jesus' family tree. And when you get to Salmon, Matthew stops and he wants everyone who's reading to remember that Salmon's wife was Rahab, who happened to be 
a prostitute, but that's who she was. If you were here last week, she's no longer identified by that. That's, no, that's just a label that the world gave her, but that's, that's who she was. And he doesn't want the reader to miss that. And the question is, why? For most of us, if there's something embarrassing in our life that we don't want people to know about, we just gloss over it real quickly. And this goes back to the theme of this entire series that we're talking about every week so that at the end of the series, you'll always remember why there's a genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. It's because the kind of people Jesus came from are the kind of people that Jesus came for. And when Matthew highlights these interesting people and R-rated events, what he is you know, reminding us is that Jesus came for everyone. You see, these characters, these interesting people in Jesus' genealogy, they're, just, they're not just part of the Christmas story. They're the point of the Christmas story. They're the reason why Jesus came, and not just them, but us as well. And after 17 verses of a genealogy, Matthew talks about the birth of Jesus, and then the rest of the 28 chapters of his gospel are about Jesus' life, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection, and a reminder to us, a direction to us, that in order or the way that we get into a right relationship with God is not by being better than the people around us, is not by being good or going to church. It is only through the perfection of Jesus Christ. He wins for us that right relationship. And that's why you and I, no matter what we're going through, no matter what's in our past, can have joy this Christmas. So we're gonna get back into that genealogy. I'm gonna read the first five verses once again. Here's how Matthew's gospel begins. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, who was the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Let me show you, Matthew is saying. So Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Next verse. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and then Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And so that's who we're going to talk about today. We're going to dig into a little bit of Ruth's story. So not so many years after Salmon and Rahab got married and had a baby, there happened to be a famine or a drought in Israel. And there was a, a man living in Bethlehem at the time. His name was Elimelech. And Elimelech was married to Naomi. Now, they also had two sons, just lots of fun names. Malon and Kilian were their two sons. And as they saw, uh, Elimelech did, that Israel was in a famine, 
Elimelech makes the decision that, and not a good one, by the way, that we are going to, as a family, move to Moab in order to escape this famine. Now, if you're to look on the map, here's Bethlehem, here's Moab. From a geographic perspective, not very far, only about 60 miles or so. But this was a monumental move in terms of culture and of religion. Moab was a very vicious pagan country or area. Um, They obviously did not uh, worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but instead they worshiped a a false God named Chemish. And even the, the worship of this Chemish was violent as human sacrifice was a, a very real part, a regular part of this religion. And so this is the area that Elimelech and his family decides to move to. Now, while they're there, let's go back to the family tree, Malon and Killian find um, and become acquainted with some Moabite girls. And, or women, and they get married, and their wives are named Ruth and Orpah. <clears throat> now, here's the interesting thing. Elimelech made this decision to move his family to Moab to escape this drought from a religious or a faith perspective, not the greatest move, as I've already showed you. And interestingly enough, they moved to save their lives, but within 10 years, the writer of Ruth tells us that Malon, Killian, and Elimelech all die. And so all that are left are Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And as widows at this time and in this culture, um, it was going to be very hard for them um, to take care of themselves. And so Naomi gets this idea or thought. She hears that the famine in Israel is now over, She really has nothing keeping her in Moab anymore. And so she decides that she's going to move back to her home area near Bethlehem in Israel. And so now Orpah and Ruth have a decision to make. Do we go with Naomi to Israel or do we stay in our homeland here in Moab? Well, Orpah, she decides to stay, and Naomi, or Ruth, I should say, decides to go with Naomi. And I think this is a good time to just pause and to really think about um, how big of a decision this was for Ruth. You've had to make big decisions before. And sometimes you might be like me, where it's helpful to have a pros and a cons list. But sometimes just the sheer numbers of pros or cons don't really tell the whole story. And for uh, Ruth, when it comes to the, the, the pros of moving to, Can- to Israel, those pros would have been far less in many ways, from a numbers perspective than staying in Moab. Uh, As one example, I'll give you three of them. One, as you already heard, she was a Moabite. So this is her homeland. This is what she knows. This is the culture she grew up with. This is what she's comfortable with. Number two, 
um, she was um, a widow. And so when it comes to being able to take care of herself, the, the family, the extended family unit would be back in Moab, not in Israel. Finally, she was a, a younger woman who still had opportunity in her life to get remarried and to have children. And she's moving to a place where Jewish young men were not supposed to marry Moabite women. And so when you just look at the pros and the cons, here's all the, the things that Naomi, or Ruth is dealing with. If she moves to Moab, there will be no husband, no family, no friends, no job, no home, no Israel, if, no food, if she moves to Israel. And yet, her decision was to go. Even though the pros and the cons list... <laughs> just from sheer numbers, would not have led her in that direction. One pro outnumbered all the cons. One pro versus 50 cons for Ruth made all the difference in the world. What was it? Well, listen to Ruth's words. In Ruth chapter one, here's what she tells Naomi. Your people, Naomi, will be my people, and your God, my God. May the Lord, can you see it in all caps again this week? She's using the proper name of the God of the Bible, Yahweh. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So there is no doubt that part of Ruth's decision was a love for her mother-in-law. But behind that, and more foundational than just a love for Naomi, was a desire to follow God, was a love for her Lord. We don't have any of the details, but it must have been at some point in her marriage to Malon that she began to understand the, the God of Elimelech and Naomi. And she came to faith and she came to believe the promise of a coming Messiah and a coming savior and the love of the God of the Bible rather than the, the anger of the violent God, Chemish. And so she decided to go. Our, our first fill-in is true of Ruth, but it's also true for us too. I, something we're going to talk a little bit more about here. Walking with God is better, no matter what comes along with it. Let me say that again. Walking with God, following God's will, doing what God says, following his direction is better, no matter what comes along with it. All of us come to decisions in our lives, whether that be about career or about finances, about relationships, um, about schedules. And this is a very good reminder for us that following God's direction, God's priority, God's will, whatever that might be in the area that you're deciding is always better no matter what other things will come along with it. Um, in a lot of things in life, <laughs> it's going to be a little uh, ambiguous here, but in a lot of decisions, there's the thing 
And then there's the things that come along with the thing. So let me give you an example of this. Some of you know that we have a dog. About five years or so, we have a little dog, Morky. Uh, Her name's Harper, and uh, our family generally loves her. But I will tell you, I did not want a dog. The kids wanted a dog. And they spent years trying to convince me and Carrie to have a dog. In fact, one of our kids put a PowerPoint presentation together and had this big presentation for us of why we should have a dog. And it wasn't the thing that bothered me. It wasn't the dog itself. I mean, dogs are generally cute. What the problem was is that there's the thing, but then there's the things that come along with the thing like walks and veterinarian appointments and buying the food. And, then, and there's, then there's the things that come out of the thing that you buy or have, right? And it was all of the other things. And sometimes when we make decisions, we're so quick to think about the thing, in this case, the dog, And we don't spend enough time thinking about the things that come along with the thing. As a family that's gone from young children to now older ones, we're still in this season, but it's been a while that I have some perspective. I I think sometimes schedules can be something like that. Um, I know that there's a lot of pressure, I've felt it, to say yes and to sign up for this and to sign up for that, and then you don't really think about the things that come along with the thing that doesn't allow you to maybe do the things that are the most important things because you're just, if your family at times has been like me, just running around, right? Or maybe it's a relationship decision. And there's the thing, like if it, feels good, let's do it, you know? But then there's the things that come along with the thing that we don't always think about. Now, our first fill-in said this, walking with God is better no matter what comes along with it. See, you don't always know what the things are that are going to come with the thing. (laughs) I've discovered some new things having a dog. But here's what you can take to the bank. When you and I like Ruth, and we're not going to get this right every single time. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, but it's important and good for us to remember this. When, When we follow God, when we walk with him, when we walk with his will, no matter what things come along with the thing, you're going to be okay. He's going to guide you. He's going to be with you. He's going to bless you. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter six, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all of these things, the the things you think you need the most, or he's going to give you the things that he knows you need the most. All these things that you're worried about, he'll take care of you. They'll be added to you as well. That doesn't mean you're going to get everything you hope for. It means God is going to take care of you. Walking with God is better, no matter what comes along with it. (laughs) So, Ruth, she moves to Bethlehem with Naomi. And this isn't some fairy tale where right away everything is just great for Ruth and Naomi. In fact, 
it was hard. Two widows, no one to take care of them, no food, no place to live. Well, one of the the Jewish laws at the time is if you owned a field and you were raising grain or uh, growing grain or some other crop, that you were required to leave a portion of the boundary of your land um, unpicked or ungathered. And that was left there for those who were poor to be able to, the word is glean, or to take some of that to eat. And so that's what was happening here as Ruth, she goes to gather food. She goes to glean some food. And the owner of the field that she was gleaning from happened to be a man named Boaz. Now, you've heard his name. We've read it the last three weeks. Boaz, who is the son of Rahab. And Boaz, um, we find throughout the four chapters of Ruth, is just an amazing man of God. Not perfect, but a man who loved the Lord, a man who wanted to do right Um, in his life. And over those four chapters of Ruth, you can read it on your own. Ruth and Boaz end up having, um, beginning a relationship. And eventually they get married. And Boaz, you can read it for yourself, according to Jewish law, also happened to have the, the right to buy the land that Elimelech and Naomi used to own near Bethlehem because uh, it's a Jewish term, but he was considered to be the the guardian redeemer or the kinsman redeemer for that family because Ruth and and, um, uh, Naomi, I should say, and Boaz were loosely related. And so Boaz ends up being a blessing to Ruth through marriage and ends up giving both Naomi and Ruth food and a home and taking care of them. Something Ruth, well, she could have never guessed would be the case when she made the decision to follow God, to walk with God and go with Naomi to Israel, but that God took care of her. The, the climax of the entire book, I would say, is in Ruth chapter four, where we read, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, some of Naomi's friends, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. Here, referencing the son that um, Ruth just had, which would be Naomi's grandson. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Um, Because now Naomi and Ruth have a son uh, or grandson, there's now their future in many ways is now secured because of that. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so Ruth, the Moabitess, Ruth, the outsider, Ruth, the the non-Jew, would become the great-grandmother of the greatest king 
in Israel's history. Now, this is much like last week with Rahab, surprising to us. But 2,000 years ago, when this was first written, and even further back, about 3,000 years ago or so, when Ruth was alive, this would have been even more of an amazing thing. And, and here's why. You see, over the course of time, the descendants of Abraham, whom we still call the Jewish nation, um, they were chosen by God's grace to be the family from which the Savior would, would come. And that was a very special thing. And we see throughout the Old Testament that God had a very special presence with the Jewish nation. But over time, what happened is that instead of the Jews recognizing, and you can read this throughout the Bible, the pages of Scripture, that um, they are still saved by the grace of God who chose them just because he had to choose some family, they began to find most of their security, both for the present and the future, in being a descendant of Abraham, in, in the blood in their veins, and the family they belonged to. And so even when John the Baptist came onto the scene and when Jesus came onto the scene, this was something that the, the Jewish nation at the time needed to wrestle with, that it wasn't being related to Abraham that was the biggest thing. It was, well, what the descendant of Abraham, Jesus, would someday do. In fact, listen to what John the Baptist says, it recorded in Matthew 3, as he's speaking to some of the Jews gathered around him, repent, change, don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father and that everything's going to be okay merely because you have the right blood in your veins. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. It's not such a big thing to be related or to have a, a descendant named Abraham. It's not the blood running through your veins. It is the blood that the Messiah, the Savior, would someday shed and give that makes you truly a son or daughter of Abraham. And this might, again, seem to be so normal to us in many ways, but you, you can't miss just how countercultural, how different that would have been for the Jews as they had gotten things twisted over the years. Um, our second fill-in is simply this. It's the blood of Jesus that makes us a part of God's family. And, and Christians, 2,000 years later, I think sometimes we too can get stuck on certain things that make us a part of God's family that really aren't at the heart of it. it it's not mere church attendance. It's not wearing the right clothes or being a part of the right earthly family. It's not having a, a certain, you know, past record that looks good compared to other people. It's, it's the blood of Jesus. And, and as you think of Ruth and Naomi and their situation as they moved to Israel and Boaz found them, the thing we celebrate today is that we have a greater Boaz. It happened to be his 20s great-grandson 
named Jesus. See, Boaz came and found Ruth and Naomi struggling in the poverty of not having enough. Jesus came to earth because he saw us struggling in the poverty of our sin. And maybe for some of us, as we spend some time talking about making good decisions or right decisions when it comes to following God, and whatever comes with that is going to be okay. For, for many of us, maybe all of us, there's a part of us when we hear that that keeps thinking about those one or two or five decisions that we've made that we know were wrong and we might still be suffering some of the consequences for it. I, I want you to know that you have a greater Boaz who even though we've made bad decisions at times and maybe will in the future, has come to redeem you. And in fact, sin and all, Jesus calls us his bride. And he, with his life, gave us new life and new hope and made us his own forever. And so, as Matthew writes his genealogy, And as he gets to Boaz, the father of Obed, he wanted all of the readers to remember that the mother of Obed, the great-grandmother of David, was a full-blooded Moabite who grew up worshiping Chemish, But because of God's grace, even though she had been an outsider, she is an outsider no longer. Because the people that Jesus came from are the people that Jesus came for. Now, this whole idea of feeling like an outsider is something that can be difficult. Have have you ever felt like an outsider? If you haven't, you've never been a teenager, right? Some of the biggest points of parenting is helping our kids navigate through at times feeling like an outsider. It doesn't totally change when you're an adult. A few years ago, um, I had a a good friend from high school. He's still a good friend. Um, He actually stood up in my wedding and I found out that he got married and all my friends were there, but for some reason, I still don't know why, um, never got an invite and that that stung. Maybe you guys know why, you know, those who know me, maybe. I don't know. Um, I think this is something we struggle with a lot, again, adults, teenagers, and it has a lot to do with social media because now we know when just about anyone's doing anything with anybody and we know if we're not there. It's pretty amazing when you have that kind of friend that you know has always got your back, that always loves you, that will never leave you out, that always cares about you. When, when you find a friend like that, man, hold on to him or her. And some of you are like, I, I wish I had a friend like that. And I'm here to tell you, you do. His name is Jesus. 
And because of Jesus, you never need to, and I know we'll still struggle with this sometimes, but you never really need to feel like you're on the outside anymore. Ruth experienced that. You are a part of the, by faith, the greatest family there could be. It's not the people you're sitting next to. It's the family of God. And because of Christ's blood, you're a part of the family forever. Number three, because Jesus went to the cross, you need to know you're not on the outside. You're not left out. So just one word of application here before we close. This is our story. Ruth's story is our story. He's made us a part of God's family, even though our sin should have left us on the outside. Oh, no, by the way, I don't know that any of us are, are Jewish here either. So that's another thing, right? That leaves us on the outside, but for the blood of Jesus, right? I've been you know, reminded once again that while Christmas can be this time, a, one of the greatest times and the blessed, most blessed times for many of us, um, for a good number of people, it tends to be the hardest time of the year. Statistics tell us that depression spikes during the Christmas season and um, lots of other mental health issues are, are on the rise during Christmas time. Maybe that's your story. And there can be lots of different reasons for that. Some of them are financial. Um, some of them are the memories of, of past loved ones who are no longer with us anymore. And Christmas has a way of just bringing that all back to the mind. Uh, some of it is anxiety over family gatherings and cousin Eddie. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons, right? Here's what I would like. By the blood of Christ, no one who's in Christ is an outsider. Some feel that way. Be on the lookout for people who feel that way whether it's a card or a phone call or a, just a, what can I do to help you? Be on the lookout for people who might feel on the outside right now. May we be Christ to them. May we be Boaz to those people during the next two weeks that seem to be struggling. Or I'll say it this way, number four, share the love that Jesus shared with you. Isn't it amazing? Before Matthew got to the birth of Jesus, he made sure that all of his readers knew that one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus was an outsider named Ruth because Jesus came for outsiders like you and me so that we never need to feel outside anymore. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we, um, we thank you for your love and becoming a human and going from the, the riches of heaven and for 33 years living in, in poverty yourself and experiencing all that we experience here on this earth, uh, except for one thing. You navigated that perfectly without sin. And we thank you for being our perfect substitute. Lord, as we experience the, the joy and the, the peace that comes along with that, I, I pray that you would guide all of us to be on the lookout for people 
who might need to hear that love of Jesus. And for some, it might be an invitation to church, but for others, it might be simpler than that. Just acknowledgement that they're seen or that they're cared for, an invitation to, to help, whatever it might be, Lord, guide us to the, show the love that you have showed to us. We pray this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.